Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of PAS FML, the only podcast run by an actual, real-life, current PA student. That's me. I'm your host, PAK, and on today's episode, I am actually going to be bringing you the, I guess it would be the third installment of the ever-popular Things I Wish I Had Known Before I Started PA School. So I've already done, I guess, about two of these, and the very first one was the very first pilot of this entire podcast. Um, And in that, I talked all about how to study. Um, So certainly worth your while if you haven't listened to that yet. And then the other one I talked about was on stress and anxiety. And that one's super important. And even if you don't have either of those two things in your life, congratulations, um, definitely still worth listening, I think. Um, So some pretty helpful segments before this one. Uh, But this current one, I actually want to talk about what you should study. So we've already done how, uh, and now we're going to do what in God's green earth should you be studying. So let's dig in. All right. Before I get too far into what you should be studying, which, of course, is what you're here for. Sorry. Um, But I actually wanted to bring up something that I probably should have put in the pilot episode. But, you know, handful of months later, it occurs to me I should have talked about it. But um, I wanted to talk about this notion of there's this imagery that people use, um, people meaning like, your professors, my professors, um, they use like, what? what's PA school like? And the imagery that everybody uses is, oh, it's like trying to drink water from a fire hydrant. And they use that, like my professors use that during my, during my classes, uh, like first week on campus. And, you know, there's always some like PowerPoint picture of some massive fire hydrant just like blowing some cartoon character, like, you know, clear ways across the street. And it's hilarious. And everybody smiles and giggles because you don't know any better at that point, right? When your first week, you are essentially bright eyed and bushy tails. Yes, you're probably going to be nervous. You may have some stress already setting in, some anxiety already setting in. But like, by and large, you haven't been beat down just yet. You haven't received the day in, day out, relentless beating that is PA school. And so you can look at that picture of somebody getting blasted by a fire hydrant that first week, and you can actually kind of smile and giggle along. Well, uh, it's so true. And that's why, I mean, the the saying, the image is so true. And that's why everybody uses it. But um, again, and, and I'm kind of overlapping here what I said in the pilot episode, but Essentially, the reason why PA school is so freaking hard is because there's so much information coming at you so quickly and you have to figure out what to do with it. So again, go back and listen to uh, episode one there. Um, But essentially, the answer is, you know, how how do you drink water from a fire hydrant, i.e. how do you get PA? get through PA school. And like, there really, there really is no good, there really is no good way to do it. Everybody has their like tips and tricks that they try um, as far as how they study and, and how you de-stress and everybody kind of like fumbles through it uh, at their own pace and like on their own terms. Um, and, and that's just kind of how it's done. But there's really, there's, in my opinion, there's no good way to do it. Um, I mean, yes, I, I'm sure there are people out there who are, you know, all, what, what, like it's hard? I mean, yeah, I'm sure those people are out there. And good for you if you're one of them listening, um, although I don't know why you'd be listening to this episode. Um, but, you know, those people are smarter than me, or they can function on less than eight hours of sleep, or, you know, they don't mind, um, you know, not having a little bit of downtime every now and then. So anyway, in whatever way they do it, Obviously, this is a blanket statement, but again, not a not a great way to or not not there's no surefire way to get through PA school, and that's okay. Um, but the whole the whole thing about trying to drink from a fire hydrant, um, and I found myself like halfway through PA school getting really upset 
at that just that dumb imagery. I just I remember like getting upset at the dumb fire hydrant because I felt completely like I was drowning in in the fire hydrant. It's not that it like blew me across the street and I was kind of like shell shocked for a bit. Like it blew me across the street in into a sinkhole that and then continued to fill up the sinkhole as as I had like bricks tied to my ankles and I was like, uh, and then somebody like threw me a drowning puppy and was like, here, save this puppy as well. I mean, like that, that's the imagery that I personally felt like I was, like I I was being, um, uh, subjected to. Um, so, but here's the thing that I realized that you, I did, I didn't want my professors to turn the hose off, right? Because it's not like they're teaching you a whole bunch of, you know, superfluous information, they're, they're teaching you what they think is the core building blocks of how not to kill people, or better yet, how to improve someone's life. They're, they're teaching you very, very, very important things. And it's incredibly hard to figure out how you pare that information down. And so I don't, I didn't blame my professors for a, trying to give me a shit ton of information and be holding me to a high standard such that they expected me to remember that shit ton of information. And so I didn't want them to turn the fire hydrant down and nor should you um, and nor should they. I mean, that's just kind of part of medical training. Again, you know, at the end of the day, not only are we not trying to do harm, but like we're actually trying to do good. And so the only way to do that is to sift through a whole bunch of information that is coming at you in an, at an ungodly speed. So anyway, that's uh, that's my tidbit on trying to drink out of a fire hydrant. And uh, my advice would be to don't don't do what I did and don't try to buck the situation like you're just going to be drowning. You're going to or at the very least, you're going to be soaking wet. But that's medical training, and it kind of needs to be that terrible in order to make you the best clinician possible. Because at the end of all this, you are entrusted with someone's life. And that is, uh, I mean, not to be not to be super lame, but that is an honor and a privilege. And you damn well better have earned it. Okay, so on to the main topic, which, of course, is what should you be studying? And I'm going to start by telling you what – don't do what I did. That's what I'm going to start by telling you. Don't do what I did. And here's what I did wrong. I focused – it's not that I studied the wrong things, but I didn't study enough of the right things. Oh, great, PAK. Thanks for that. Words of wisdom. What does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Great. So essentially, when you study any topic, you can kind of think of it in different sections, right? Like there's different parts of it that you need to cover. You need to cover like any background and etiology information, including like pathophysiology of the thing. Um, So that's kind of step one. And I think I talked about this in... um, the very first episode as well. But there's, again, there's different grounds you need to cover. So like background information is one. Um, But then you also need to study like the signs and symptoms. What does it look like? And then from there, we need to do diagnostics. How do you diagnose the thing? What are the labs and imaging um, or special tests that will diagnose the thing? And then, of course, finally, how do you treat it? And then for me in my personal notes, I always had how do you treat it and then like possible complications. Um, so like for any given topic, those are the very general things that you need to put in your brain somehow in order to learn the information, like in, in order to cover the topic thoroughly. And I erroneously spent way too much time um, studying what the thing looks like, um, meaning it's signs and symptoms. And part of that is also because there was a lot of, there's a lot of new stuff that like I'd never even heard of. And so, and I guess I didn't even mention this now, but like one of the other things is, is like just becoming familiar with the damn word. So just, just learning. I mean, a lot of people should already know 
like what COPD is. Um, but like maybe you didn't know it stood for like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, so there's there's things like that or like, you know, random things that can happen to the eye. What's a hordeolum? Random things in the kidneys uh, section. Like what's a horseshoe kidney? So there are a lot of things that like, I had heard for the first time going through PA school. So there's kind of like this hidden section of, oh, by the way, did you know that this was a thing? So like, oh, okay, all right, hordeolum. Uh, how do you even spell that? So so there, there's that kind of like background information before you even get to the other sections of all the stuff that you need to follow or all the stuff that you need to study about the thing you're talking about. So um, it's important for you, of course, to like, know the name of the thing. And like I said, erroneously, I spent so much time on here's the thing and this is what it looks like. And I spent a ton of time going over those two things and some of the background in etiology as well. Um, but I didn't spend enough time focusing on how do you diagnose the thing and then how do you treat it? Now, obviously, that's not to say that I didn't study how do you diagnose it and how to treat it. But I I took a much more like cursory glance at those two things, and I ended up doing myself a disservice. Um, and I'm going to be evil. And before I get into that, I'm going to put I'm going to table that for a quick second. And I'm going to go back real quick to this whole notion of like, there's going to be a lot of stuff that comes your way that you are literally just hearing for the very first time. And when I was in grad school the first time, I had a really actually she was my most favorite professor and she had she passed on some incredible wisdom and she she used this analogy that the first time you hear something you you need to create a space for it somewhere in your brain because you can't start filling up that space with information until you have the space kind of like already like lined out of where it's going to be and she the imagery she used was called like laying mental velcro like the first time you hear something first time you hear a word or a concept like all you need to do is just like lay some mental velcro up upstairs in your brain just put it on the walls just lay a whole bunch of mental velcro and you don't need to worry too much about adding all the things into it but just put some velcro up there so that like so that the next time you hear something that's related to the thing um like all of the tennis balls that start like all the little bits of information, i.e. The, like the tennis balls that come at you can start bouncing around and like stick to that Velcro that you that you put up in your brain. Um, so that was the original imagery, um, uh, something that I, I've created that more of like a um, putting putting things in buckets or putting thing on putting things on hooks, right? Like you have to organize this information some way, whether you use like mental Velcro and things stick to it or whether you like have a bucket and like this piece of information goes in the, um, you know, goes in the COPD bucket versus the pneumonia bucket. Like you need a way to organize the information, but like you also need to create the bucket or you need to create the hook that you put information on. And one of the best ways I think to do that now, of course, having gone through PA school is to honest to God, try to at least glance at all of the information that you were presented that day in lecture. And this is so not what I did. I was more of a, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a deep dive. And I'm going to really make sure that I understand it before I move on um, to the next topic. Um, and, and maybe if you recall, I would say that I would get really behind. I would get like a day, two days, sometimes even three and even four days behind on information because I was just so um, I was just so pent up on making sure that I understood the information thoroughly before I moved on to the next topic. And now looking back, I don't know if I really if that was really the way that I should have handled it, because if if I'm four days behind, that means that the the brand new terminology that was introduced to me four days ago, I haven't looked at that again in four days. And like these words start to become unfamiliar to you. And, you know, if I waited to study something for the un, like five days, I found that like I was really going back to square one when I came to study it um, five days later. And I I think if I had eased up on myself and not forced myself to like 
remember absolutely every little detail um, right away about the things that I was the being taught in a day. Uh, I think I think I would have had an easier time when I came back to the subject. So my advice in a nutshell is really try to take like a 30,000 foot glance of your notes at the end of the day, like really and truly try to glance through. And all it may be is sitting and highlighting um, like the notes that you physically typed up in lecture, Um, which sidebar, if you can create your um, study materials while in lecture, that's even better. Like props to you. I didn't start doing that until second semester, but it was a difference. Um, And mine were actually handwritten. I think I shared that with you guys already. So um, anyway, if you can take them in real time, um, then all you have to do, haha, quote, quote, unquote, all you have to do at the end of the day is like take your highlighter and go back over the information. Again, not that you're trying to like test yourself on knowing all the details of what was presented that day, but just physically seeing these new words um, and familiarizing yourself with them will make them way less foreign to you the next time you go around. Meaning, they'll you'll you'll be able to create create a bucket or you'll be able to create a hook or you'll be able to put up your mental velcro but you have to do one of those three things initially and personally i think the best way to do that is to see the word literally as as many times as possible and that means trying to yeah cover all of the information that you get um literally the same day you you get it. No, you won't be able to do a deep deep dive on it, but again, I think looking back at my didactic year, I I if I had a time machine, I would go back and I would tell young me to ha young ha, ha I would go back and I would go back and tell young naive me uh to try to do it that way. Um so there's my little tidbit um on creating buckets and your uh, mental velcro. Okay, so back to what I did wrong when I was uh, talking about what you should be studying. So again, I tended to focus, erroneously, I focused on what the thing was and its signs and symptoms. And I spent a ton of time doing that. And obviously, this is not to say that those two things are not important. They totally are. You've got to be able to tell the difference between Bell's palsy and myasthenia gravis, for sure. When you come across that, like when the question is written on the test, and you're reading it, and they give you the signs and symptoms, sometimes the question is, what is the most likely diagnosis? And in that case, those questions, I got most of those right because I was like, oh, you know, piece of cake. I I studied the crap out of this. I got it. But the problem was is that I spent too much time doing that and I didn't spend enough time looking at um, how to diagnose the thing. And then I also want to introduce this idea of how do you diagnose the how do you diagnose the thing versus what is the first line treatment that you would do or excuse me what is the first line diag what is the first line diagnostic test that you would do if you suspect that somebody had the thing and that is a really nuanced point and of course you know hindsight's 2020 i didn't realize that as i was going forward so i'm here to share with you that one of the things that really tripped me up was I essentially, I only studied how do you definitively diagnose the thing. And in medical education, we call that what's the gold standard. Um, so I spent my time studying the gold standard for, uh, for example, how do you diagnose a pulmonary embolism? Well, gold standard is uh, CT angiography. But there were so many times where the question, you know, did a beautiful job laying the vignette of here's what the here's what the patient comes in with and here's their signs and symptoms. And of course, I'm thinking, oh, I know it. It's totally a pulmonary embolism. And then like and then the next sentence, they're like, you suspect that the patient has a pulmonary embolism. And you're like, damn, I I thought thought they were going to ask me what the thing was. Okay, okay. Well, I know that. In order to diagnose a pulmonary embolism, the best gold standard diagnostic test is a CT angiogram. So you're like, yeah, cool, cool. Okay, so going along, reading the rest of the question. And then the question asks you not how do you gold standard diagnose it, but what's the very next step 
you should do in the management of this patient. And that's where for the entire first semester, I completely fell short because I I just didn't have the appreciation for how do you pick apart the nuances of the diagnostic workup. And that's super, super, super important. Um, and then by extension, similarly, like how you treat the thing um, is also kind of an extension of this idea. But um, I'm going to circle back to that whole what's the first line management or excuse me, what's the first line diagnostic workup versus gold standard. And essentially, um, the essentially what you need to do or what I would tell my younger naive self is create a rule in your head. Um, meaning, uh, like the rule for diagnosing pulmonary embolism is CT angiogram, but part of studying is figuring out what are all the exceptions to that rule. So while the gold standard i.e. while the rule of how do you diagnose pulmonary embolism is CT angiogram, what are all of the other things that could be going on in the situation, either like the patient demographics themselves or some other comorbidities that are going on that are an exception to that rule? And again, there there's the appreciation of the nuance between um, how do you diagnose something and what would you do as a first-line workup? And again, you know, this is medical education training. Like, you're going to get somebody who like in real life you're going to you're going to get the person who comes in um but maybe can't have a CT angiogram um because they've got like decreased kidney function so like decreased kidney function becomes the exception to the rule um and again that's that's an example of like a comorbidity that would change your your gold standard um, other things that are the exceptions to the gold standard rule are a ton of like patient demographics. Um, let's say your patient is pregnant. How does that change any of the diagnostic studies or workups that you want to do? Because I'll tell you, spoiler alert, um, if you have a, like a pregnant gal and you're worried about PE in her, there's this brand new other thing called a VQ scan. And that's going to be the thing that you actually should do for her. Um, you know, so understanding that, yes, there is this gold standard of things, but there are plenty of situations that will call for you to deviate from that rule. Again, some of them can be comorbidities. Some of them can be patient demographics. Um, others of them could be lab values, which is kind of along with like comorbidities. Um, you know, maybe the patient doesn't have a history of like renal function dysfunction, but maybe if they came in super dehydrated um, and their creatinine was through the roof, maybe there are things that you like shouldn't do. Um, like give them IV contrast. So I hope I'm not getting too specific here, but I think that giving some examples are really just a good way um, to show you what it is um, to sh what it is that I'm talking about. So understanding the difference between a gold standard versus like what's the very first thing you're going to do, um, because there are a ton of those questions. Um, and to take it even a deeper level, not only are there questions on the exam that ask, um, you know, what what's the first line treatment that you want to do? Um, but or, or excuse me, what's the first line diagnostic study that you want to do? But sometimes the first line diagnostic study is actually to rule out something else. Case in point, if you think somebody's coming in with a stroke, um, like the gold standard to identify an ischemic stroke is an MRI, but you don't do that the very, that's not the very first thing that you do because an MRI takes hella long. Um, and if you have any chance to help this person, you need to figure out what's going on immediately and give them treatment immediately. So again, the, even though an MRI might be, you know, gold standard for diagnosing an, an ischemic stroke, that's not the first thing you're going to do. The first thing you're going to do is actually a non-contrast CT. But here's the thing. You want to do a non-contrast CT, not because you're looking for an ischemic stroke, but because you want to rule out a hemorrhagic stroke, meaning just like a huge brain bleed. Um, and a CT can be done quicker 
and it helps rule out something else that's super, super, super scary. So, um, again, just kind of throwing another layer there. Um, but those are that's the kind of thinking about the diagnostic workup, which includes first-line screening things, first-line diagnosis, diagnostic, like labs and imaging, um, that have nothing to do with the gold standard for how do we – how do we say with certainty, this is the thing you have? Because turns out there's a whole bunch of other things that you could be doing beforehand and like probably should be doing. So again, that was a nuance that I did not understand um, that that I needed to know and I should have spent more time on. All of those exceptions to the rules. Your patient is pregnant Um, And yeah, like sometimes you need to get a little sexist. Um, You know, there are some things that men are greater at risk for or sometimes women are greater at risk for. Um, So, you know, it's kind of the one time that it's okay to be a little sexist, um, you know, and don't you dare take that (laughs) comment out of uh, context. I'll I'll come back for you. Um, But uh you know, knowing your patient demographics, which includes their sex, which includes their race, which includes their age, um, again, and also, of course, all the other comorbidities going on, things that are chronic and things that are things that just happen to them. All of those things you need to take into account um, in order to figure out what's the thing that you're going to do first, because you're going to get out in the real world. And, you know, not everybody is going to be a 28-year-old white female who's otherwise healthy but has weird overall muscle weakness um, and you're, you know, uh, stuck there thinking like, okay, well, what should I do? Like, she may be pregnant. Um, and, you know, does that change your diagnostic workup? Um, it might, but you need to study those. So you need to study the rule. How do you diagnose the thing? But you also need to study all of the various ways that that changes because you're going to get into, again, the real world. Obviously, that's our main goal. But in the middle of a test, you're going to go, oh, man, I totally knew that a CT angiogram is the way to diagnose a pulmonary embolism. But crap, this patient is pregnant. I totally forgot if that changes my management um, of this. And uh, that'll be... So having having that information in mind when you study about the diagnostic workup to include, of course, the gold standard, um, that will really go a long way to help you kind of tease apart, you know, when they throw these seemingly weird things in the vignette, like, oh, well, you know, their BUN is 90 or, hey, they're over age 65 and you need to pull from your brain. Oh, my God, did that change anything? I totally forgot if the patient was over 65. Did that change whether or not I can do this thing or look for that thing? Or, oh, they're over 65. Oh, I got to make sure that I pull this lab um, in addition to all the other ones. So there, at any for any given thing, there is a myriad um, of directions you can go with your diagnostic workup and patient demographics. Um, and patient comorbidities are going to be your roadmap for which direction you turn. So memorize those directions. Memorize, um, you know, turn left here if this. Keep going straight if that. Memorize all of those little things and you won't be like me and hopefully you won't grow to hate the questions uh, that end in, what's the recommended first line initial diagnostic step in the management of this patient? So you're welcome. So I just spent a ton of time saying the words patient demographics uh, a a million times, Um, but uh, just wanted to hammer it home. So I wanted to finish that thought of what are some things that could be going on in your patient, either inherently in who they are, i.e. their demographics, or like what has recently befallen them in their comorbidity or their comorbidities. Um, but I wanted to extend that a little bit into how do you treat someone. So I'm obviously I don't I don't need to do a big thing here. Um, but uh, I just wanted to say that in the same way that you make different like left turns or right turns or keep going straight, whatever, um, you know, from the 
uh, rule, meaning, you know, do you need to veer away from the rule based on any of the information that you're given? Um, treating treating things are is a lot the same way, right? Um, sometimes, I mean, there's a handful of things where there's only one way to treat it and that's it. Like gonorrhea and chlamydia, that's, I mean, that's always going to be ceftriaxone and azithromycin. Like that's, that's just what it is and there's no other way around it. But for other things, you also need to pay attention to, again, what's, what's the patient like um, and what are they coming in with? Um, so just a handful of, of examples here, like, uh, uh, if somebody's got pharyngitis, uh, so they've got strep throat, um, yeah, sure. Normally the gold standard treatment is just throw a penicillin at it. Um, but I, I didn't do enough of like second line management. So like now that I'm out in the real world, like people are absolutely quote unquote allergic to penicillin. And so um, that's this is kind of an easy example because they'll probably tell you about that in PA school too, that like everybody and their mom thinks they're allergic to penicillin and they'll get into why. Um, but I didn't spend enough time doing like second line treatments. So what's the second line treatment if somebody's allergic to penicillin for pharyngitis um, or or like complications? Like at what point would you like refer a patient to a surgeon or a specialist? Because those questions do pop up on the vignette. You know, they do a beautiful job of setting up what the patient uh, is coming in for and they tee up, you know, all of like the labs and you're like, oh man, this obviously this is a cystic fibrosis patient. But then the question is, um, you know, how do you want to treat this patient? And maybe two of the answers are actual treatments and two of the answers are like refer to specialty. And you're like, well, crap, which one do I do? Again, there's there's that nuance of, well, go. you got to go back to the vignette and see if they gave you any other information that changed the gold standard management. Um, so uh, similarly, like I said, with the, the strep pharyngitis, um, you know, there's rules for when does somebody get their tonsils out? So at how many, at how many, instances of strep throat per year, would the answer change from throw a penicillin at them to they need to go see in like an ENT to get those bad boys out. Um, so like that's a thing. So, you know, again, it's not just enough to know the gold standard treatment for some of the some of these things, right? Some things are yes, like cut and dry. Um, but other things are not. Um, like uh I know like the musculoskeletal um uh um, oh my God, I just lost the word. <laughs> the musculoskeletal section uh, had a ton of that. Um, so like broken bones and, or like rheumatoid stuff. Um, so depending on how badly it sounded like the patient broke a bone or looking at an x-ray, depending on how me and your professors want to be too, um, looking at an x-ray and deciding how bad that break is, uh, are you going to just splint it and send them to ortho in the next couple of days? Or like, is this an emergency? Are you calling the ortho surgeon out of bed at two o'clock in the morning? Um, so again, approach the treatment aspects with needing to know the nuances of what would change management in that. I personally, I think I did a little bit better job studying those things, those kinds of things that would change treatment. Um, but not not nearly enough. Um, so that's what I wish I would tell my younger self. And you know, now that I've now that I've given all the reasons for like here's or given all the examples for here's some things that I did wrong. Please, you don't. Please, you learn from my mistakes. You know, I I want to say that I, I think the reason why I didn't that get that weedsy with diagnostic workups and. Uh, the, you know, how to treat the thing 17 different ways is I went in this wrongfully thinking two things. One, I said to myself, this isn't med school. This is PA school. I don't need to be a doctor and nor do I want to be a doctor. Um, I, I wanted to be, be a PA from the very first time that I ever considered, do I want to be PA or do I want to be an MD? Um, and I couldn't be happier with that decision. Um, but, but I, 
I wrongly thought, well, this isn't med school. I don't need to know all these 17 exceptions to the rules. And then the other thing that I, again, wrongfully thought was that I thought that I was being trained to be a generalist. And while there's a lot of PA schools out there, mine included, that definitely focus and want to train PAs to work in kind of like the primary care setting, for sure, I got too bogged down thinking, I'm never going to need to know how to treat, you know, that weird ulcerative colitis thing. Like, that's obviously a specialist. I'm obviously going to send them to GI and never have to think about it again. So I got really bogged down um, or well, I, I, I did myself a disservice by saying, oh, I'm not a doctor and I'm only going to be a primary care person. And I just, I didn't get in the weeds. And by that, I mean, I didn't appreciate the nuances of the diagnostic workup and, you know, what changes management in terms of treating someone. Uh, so I wish I could tell my younger self that even though I'm not going to be a doctor and even though I'm not going to be a specialist, maybe, you still need to know those things. And the answer of, well, why do you need to know those things is because when you know it, your patient population is going to be diverse, which sounds like the most obvious thing I could say here. Uh, but, you know, it, it escaped me um, because things are really easy to get kind of like locked into your own world uh, during the first year of didactic, uh, uh, during the didactic year there. So, like you you need to know the nuances of a diagnostic workup because like you're going to get that odd patient who you know maybe doesn't have a spleen and like yeah it might be like 1 in 3000 or even more but you, like that patient's going to walk through your primary care door and you're going to need to know what to do um uh, that's a a little bit kind of extreme of an example but you know not not everybody's going to be like the picture perfect of like, you know, of how the case was presented to you in class in order for you to learn the material. And again, people are people are their own unique individuals and you need to study so that you can help each unique individual, both in their diagnostic workup and both in their treatment. So that is a really salient point that I absolutely wish I had a time machine to go back in time a year and a half and tell my young self um, that it doesn't matter that you're not going to be a doctor and it doesn't matter that you're not going to be a specialist. Those people with ulcerative colitis or like weird uh, endocrine things, while, you know, it may not be every day, but like those patients are going to come through your door and you're going to need to know, um, like if, if somebody, if some... 70-year-old lady comes in and she, all she says is she's got like she's had a cough for 10 days and you don't think it's that bad but then she tells you oh by the way uh I I also have like rheumatoid arthritis and I'm on all these like immunosuppressant things like that may actually change management whereas if it were a 25-year-old super healthy person with no comorbidities you might you know say well why don't you check in check in with me in 4 days and we'll see how you're doing at that point but you know the the slightly elderly lady with immunosuppression in her history you might actually give that lady an antibiotic so anyway you're both you're going to see both of those people and you're going to need to know how to treat both of those people a to be a good provider but b um, also to pass the test. And that actually brings me into my very last topic that I wanted to talk about today, um, which is how the real world uh, differs from what you'll be taught in class and what will show up on the exam. Okay, so last up on the list of topics for today is this kind of infuriating and uh, pretty frustrating notion that there's actually quite the difference between what you're taught in school and specifically like what shows up on the test and even more specifically what shows up on the boards and then what you actually see in real life. And this gets at a little bit of what I just finished talking about, about that whole there's 
17 different things that may change a diagnostic workup, and there's 17 different things that might change how you manage and treat someone. And and you you do hear about those in school, and of course you need to know about them because that's what I just said. You're going to see those people in real life as well. But there's this like super frustrating thing that I'm only now beginning to appreciate why it exists. Um, and like I said, that's the difference between the things that show up on the boards are not what I've been seeing on my four rotations now in the real world. So I've been on clinical rotations for, let's see, August, September, October, November, December, January, six months. Oh, my God, it's only been six months. I mean, it's been six glorious months. <laughs> uh, I have felt a little bit more like a human being. But um, certainly, I mean, six months is a decent amount of time for me to be able to get enough distance between the didactic year and enough experience in the real world to have formed this opinion that, like, I remember when we were in the endocrinology unit and any of my classmates who are listening to this are probably already have, like, dropped to the ground laughing hysterically just about what, what like, a, how comical that test we took was, like, the, the number of pheochromocytomas that I've seen in the real world in six months has been one. I have seen one patient. And for those of you listening who don't know what a pheochromocytoma is, uh, yeah, that's my point. <laughs> it's just, it's not terribly out there. Um, you know, maybe somebody's going, well, my aunt has it or, you know, obviously it's a thing and people get it, but it's just, it's not very prevalent, like compared to something, say, like diabetes, wherein diabetes is like the second most common thing that the second most common comorbidity that my patients have. Number one is hypertension, just as a sidebar. Um, But there's this difference between you will learn all the things about pheochromocytomas and the 17 different nuances about their diagnosis and treatment. And maybe on the test, they may actually be like seven questions about pheochromocytomas. And yet, I think I, ha- I had a preceptor after I, after I saw the patient in real life who had had a pheo, who had had, everybody just calls him pheo, so I'm going to just say that. She had had a femo pheo. Uh, I asked him after she left, like, were you the one that diagnosed that? And he was like, oh, God, no. You know, she just like came to me and said, oh, by the way, I've, I had this thing re- surgically removed like a decade ago. Um, uh, and so then I asked him, OK, well, you didn't diagnose that one. Have you ever diagnosed one? And I think he's been in practice for like 12 years now. And he was like, yeah, I, I saw it once. It, like undiagnosed, he got concerned for it and, you know, sent him off to special uh, endocrinologist and it was diagnosed. So like... There's the, there's this difference. And part of me got super frustrated when I was studying a didact, didactic year, again, kind of along the same lines of like, why am I studying this? I'm not going to be the specialist. But you're going to need to know that information primarily for the boards, mainly for the test, mainly for the boards. But uh, also, and I know I just said this, but you also want to be a good good clinician, right? When somebody comes in with kind of like vague symptoms, like, There's a big saying, like, when you hear horseshoes, you should think of horses. Or when you hear hoofbeats, you should think of horses and not zebras. And, of course, zebras are more common. Um, Oh, my God, I just said that wrong. Horses are more common, but zebras are, you know, a little bit more exotic and a little bit fewer and far between. So that's another, like, big saying that you'll come across in PA school. And so even in the same breath that they tell you when you hear hoofbeats, you should think horses, um, they also want you to know the 17 different signs of what a pheochromocytoma presents with. Um, and that's a little bit frustrating. But again, you know, I, I remind myself and I remind and I hope to, you know, beat it into your heads that, you know, your professors are 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 holding you to that exceptionally high standard so that you can be the best provider out there. So that when some poor girl comes through your office and says she's had diarrhea for the past two years and unintended weight loss, you don't just shrug your shoulders and say something like, oh, well, you know, you know maybe you just have IBS. Um, you know, you, you need to look into that 
you need to look into that and you need to look into what ulcerative colitis is like. Um, so, uh, anyway, there's, there's that big difference between what they teach, what you see in the real world. And I personally was actually pretty pissed <laughs> this last time. Uh, all, all my class, uh, all the students in my class were actually just brought back to campus about a month ago after having been on clinical rotations for like four months. And we had to sit for a practice boards exam. Um, and I remember going into that. Thankfully, my school does it such that you can't get kicked out of school if you don't do well on this first practice boards. It's just kind of like a tester to see where you are. Um, so I, I really didn't study that much. And I remember thinking, I mean, this was even like six weeks ago. So it's I, you know, I haven't grown, I haven't grown super wise in six weeks. I've just like gone through a thing. But even six weeks ago, I was like, oh, I've totally, I've been through, I've been out in the real world for four months. I don't need to study that much. Like, obviously, my real world experience should help me on this, on this practice boards exam. I should be good. And like, literally, I think it was, I don't know, like 270 question practice board exam. I think there was literally one question that I remember thinking to myself, oh, thank God, I totally saw that in person and knew how to answer the question on the boards. Because the boards aren't real life. And that used to piss me off because I was like, why don't like, why doesn't the exam reflect what you see in real life? And again, it just goes back to the whole, because you need to be the best clinician possible. Because being an excellent provider means knowing how to treat the common things, but also knowing how to maintain a relatively healthy level of curiosity and skepticism such that when somebody comes in with an, a unique set of symptoms, you don't just casually shrug your shoulders and go, eh, I guess that's IBS. Um, so they do it so that you're a better provider, so that you don't miss those things. I mean, it's it's obvious to say that, you know, your, your professors and you and the people writing the board's questions, like, obviously, you guys, you don't want to miss, like, the big red flag scary things, right? You know, nobody wants to miss a stroke or a heart attack. And those are the things that I, it was obvious to me that I would be learning all about how to, how to, uh, how to, detect those things and then how to manage them. And that was obvious to me. But what wasn't so obvious that I'm even now probably just in the middle of coming to appreciate is that the boards may have 18 questions on pheochromocytomas and you may only see a pheo once in a 12-year career. And that's okay because your professors are going to beat that information into your head so that you don't miss it when it finally walks into your door for the first time in 12 years. Um, so keep keep that in mind. All things to think about when you're studying. Um, yeah, we're not being trained to be medical doctors, but you know, if you want to look your patient in the eye and they say, a PA, like, what the hell does that mean? And your answer is, you know, actually, I can do just about everything. Uh, I can do everything that a doctor would do, including write prescriptions, but I wouldn't do any surgeries on my own. Uh, that's actually something that I took from my um, current um, preceptor. That was her answer when I asked her, what do you tell people like what a PA does? You know, but essentially you lead with, I do everything that a doctor does. Um, maybe I don't do surgeries on my own, but otherwise I do everything that a doctor does, including ordering labs and writing prescriptions. So even though you don't get an MD at the end of this, you're still responsible for the information. And again, all of this, again, at the end of the day, is to make yourself a better provider. So when you're in the middle of your endocrinology textbook and you're going, why in the hell am I even caring about this dumb syndrome called MEN2, which I don't even I don't even know what that stands for anymore. I definitely need to go read that. Um, but when you're in the you're when you're in the middle of those terrible like weeds questions, just know that it's probably going to be on your end of unit exam and it's definitely going to be on the boards. So you need to study it for that reason. But the real reason, of course, is that one in 12 year patient who walks through your door with a weird thing, you may have forgotten all of the tidbits about it, but you at least know that it's a thing and your spidey sense goes off and says, 
I think I need to read up to date or, you know, whatever textbook about this thing because I want to make sure that I'm not missing something here. And so that's what um, all of that intense studying is is really for at the end of the day. Um, So that's my diatribe on, yeah, it sucks, but you need to study the nitty gritty. Your patients will thank you and you'll sleep better at night. Oh, my God, you guys, we did it. We talked about all the things related to studying. So I think I've covered the vast majority of my study tips, uh, both between this uh, podcast here and then, of course, the the pilot episode. So between those two, hopefully you've got a better uh, idea of how you're going to attack studying or um, how you could change studying if you're in the middle school. So um, so that's it. And I'm going to uh, reward all of you who've stuck in with me this long uh, with the most hilarious joke that a patient told this week. Uh, one of the things that my pre- current preceptor does that I love is at the end of a session, she'll say, you know, okay, do you have any questions? Do you have any questions, concerns, or dad jokes for me? Um, and I, I love the way that she ends that. And every now and then we get a fantastic dad joke. Um, so I, I'll share with you what, like, I'll show you with you the dad joke, and then I'll share with you like the f- most, the actual joke. Um, so this comes, the, actually, these two come from the same lady. This was like an 87 year old gal who lives alone, is a, you know, up and active in her community. She's, totally inspiring. Um, But she came in for, God, I don't even remember what. Anyway, she was in the office. um, And so we did the whole like questions, concerns, or dad jokes. So here's her dad. Here's her dad joke. And I'm sure you've heard of it, but I I thought it was funny. Okay. Here's her dad joke. What do you call a cow with no legs? What do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. Ha 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 ha. Okay. and And then it goes, what do you call a cow with two legs? Lean beef. What do you call a cow with one leg? Extra lean beef. Okay, so those are fantastic dad jokes. And I'm sure my nieces and nephews would just roll on the floor laughing about those. All right. So she tells those three jokes right in a row. And then she kind of gets quiet. And then she's like, you know, I actually have another joke like that I'd like to tell, but it's a little bit off off color. And immediately both my preceptor and I, you know, like immediately turn away from the computer and we're like, you know, do tell. Again, this is some like 87-year-old sweet granny. She says, okay, here's my off-color joke. Two potatoes are standing on a street corner. So two potatoes are standing on a street corner. How do you know which one of them is the prostitute? I'll give you a second to think. Easy. Just look for the one that's got the sticker that says Idaho. <laughs> oh, my God. I almost died a thousand deaths right then and there to see this granny tell me that story. I think that's the most hilarious joke I maybe have ever heard. So um, anyway, those are my jokes. You've been rewarded. Uh, Thanks for sticking in with me. And um, I don't know what I'm doing next up. So I don't know. Stay tuned. Uh, That's all for now. Thanks, guys. Bye. (laughs) 